Thank you so much, worship team, of all the Christmas carols that we traditionally sing. I think that's my favorite. At least it's up there. You agree? Wonderful song. Thank you for leading us. I asked, actually asked them to sing that right before the message because this series of messages over the next four weeks, I want to umbrella with the title that comes from that Christmas carol, Christmas hymn. And it was the, the phrase that you may have noted where it says, the weary world rejoices. Do you feel like we live in a weary world? Yes, we do. And uh, this brings us back to the, the first advent. And we look forward to the second advent. Amen? Maranatha, even so come Lord Jesus. But the weary world rejoices. I want that to be our umbrella. And I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Isaiah. The gospel according to Isaiah is what we're going to call um, each time we turn to this book over the next four weeks, God willing. Isaiah 7 is where I want you to turn. And if you're using a pew Bible, which if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, I hope you'll follow along in your Bible. Um, I found um, maybe from personal experience or from watching people that are related to me that if you use a digital device, the possibility for you being distracted is great. So I just want to throw that out there that a paper Bible always ensures that you are interrupted by people sending you messages, generally speaking, unless they pass notes, which you're not allowed to do during worship services. Isaiah 7. The book of Isaiah has 66 chapters. I'm not sure if you're aware of that or not, and it's often been referred to uh, by those who have studied it and commented on it as the gospel according to Isaiah because there's so many prophecies about the Lord Jesus and the Messiah in the book of Isaiah. 66 chapters, you can actually divide it up. Of course, these chapter divisions and verse divisions were not um, inspired. They were not in the original. But you have the first 39 chapters, and uh, they're very similar to the message of the Old Testament. Judgment's coming. You've broken God's law. And then chapter 40 to chapter 66, the, the, the rest, the 27 chapters after that, uh, follow this grace note of um, the coming Messiah and the new heaven and new earth. It's a really neat way to look at the entirety of the book. Do you recall, I'm sure most of you do, that in late 2002, there was a commission that was formed in Congress um, called the 9-11 Commission. They had a couple of duties, and I'm not here to ask you if you thought that was truly bipartisan, if it was helpful. I bring it to your attention because I want us to kind of put our own commission together this morning. Their tasks were twofold. They were supposed to examine um, how this happened and the intelligence failure that took place so that 9-11 was actually a possibility. But the other aspect of their assignment, which not many talk about or even reference, was to analyze our response. So basically what happened on 9-12? How did we respond as a nation after 9-11? So part of their task was to come up with that data. And again, I'm not going to refer to their findings. That's not my point. This morning, the point is, I want us to see someone else who is in a crisis. How does he respond? Maybe more apt is, how do you respond in crises? What is your default setting? Do you know you have one? You do. Ahaz is going to be a bad example. We're going to see his son, Hezekiah, just a few chapters later, is actually a wonderful example about how to respond in crisis. But in this passage, we have 
this great prophecy of the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, found in verse 14. Spurgeon said of this verse, it's hell's terror. Satan trembles at the sound of it. And verse 14, of course, says that a virgin will conceive and bear a son. But I want us to look at verse number one, and I want us to see this big umbrella truth. I think the big umbrella truth of the virgin birth or the doctrine, the teaching of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ is this. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ is God's ultimate proof that he has the power to deliver those who trust in him. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ is a wonderful doctrine. I hope you believe in it. I hope you believe that it is true that the Lord Jesus was virgin born, virgin conceived, virgin born. But there's some application here that I hope you get as well. And that is the sign given to Ahaz and given to us is that God is able. He has the power to deliver those who fully trust in him. Now, I want us to see this in a couple ways. I would like to talk to you about the security that Ahaz is going to seek and the security that we all seek in times of crises. But also, I want you to see the sign that's given found in verse number 14. First of all, the security. The security. Only God can give this security. Look at me. Look with me in verse number 1 of chapter 7. You're going to notice that Ahaz is mentioned. Where did you see that name before, earlier in our worship service? Matthew 1. Good. You were listening. Um, Matthew 1. I tried to emphasize it vocally. It's hard to highlight it, so I tried to highlight it vocally. Here he is again in verse number 1 of chapter 7. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Ahaz is shaken. Ahaz is in a crisis. And so are the house, so is the house of David, you'll notice in our text. We need some context. Whenever we land in a historical narrative of the Old Testament, for those of you that don't like this part, please don't check out. It's very important for you to understand and to, to enjoy and to profit from this text. We need a little history and a little background. Ahaz was a king of Judah. This was the southern tribe. Just as a reminder, after Solomon's death, the kingdom of Israel split in two. There were ten tribes under the leadership of Jeroboam, and they went to the northern side, and their capital city was Samaria. When the kingdom was split, Jeroboam took ten tribes, minus Judah and Benjamin, and they were rebelling against of all things they were rebelling, one of the things they were rebelling against was uh, this kingly line of David that was sitting on the throne of Israel at the time. They moved, they placed their capital in Samaria, and they're referred to throughout the scriptures and even in this passage by other names besides Israel. But whenever you see Israel after the kingdom is split, it's referring to these rebels, these ten tribes that went to the north, really north of Jerusalem. They're also referred to as Ephraim. That's because Jeroboam was from that tribe. And sometimes they're referred to as Samaria because that was their capital city. You may recall when you come to the New Testament that Samaritans are looked down upon because 
The Samaritans, according to the Jews, were a mixed breed. They looked down on them even more than they looked down on the Gentiles. Because when the Assyrians mixed with them, there were mixed marriages. They didn't worship in Jerusalem. Remember the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, when she began to talk to Jesus and try to get him to to dialogue in this theological debate about whether they should mount worship at Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem. You remember that? You don't remember that? Okay, you do remember that. Okay, good. I, I wasn't sure. I saw some glazy eyes. Um, it's the history thing. But stay with me. So they're split. When the kingdom was split, there were only two tribes that stayed in the south. And they were the ones that are referred to as God's people, God's covenant people, because they continued to believe in God's promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that he was going to bless the line of King David and that there was going to come another son of King David who would sit on the throne of David forever and ever. They continued to believe that that would happen and they continued to believe that the line of David needed to be honored by sitting on the kingdom in Judah. And that's what you have in that genealogy in Matthew 1. You have these kings that are in the line of David all the way down to Joseph in terms of his lineage. What you need to know is that there was a real rivalry of sorts between Israel, these 10 tribes, and Judah. Now, what Israel did is they had about 20 kings in the history before they were overtaken by the Assyrians. All of them, if this is going to help you in your Old Testament history, they were all bad. Okay, say all bad, all bad. All evil, say all evil, all evil. This helps you. All 20 kings of northern Israel, Ephraim, Samaria, they were all bad. What were they? All bad. Okay, so that helps you. Now, in Judah, that's not the case. There were some bad, some good. But Ahaz was the worst. Say that with me. Ahaz was the worst. Ahaz was the worst. Okay, so they had about 19 or 20 as well kings in Judah. Judah's referred to as Judah. It was two tribes, but Judah was the larger tribe, and Benjamin was a smaller tribe. And Judah... Ahaz was about the 11th king. He was the grandson of Uzziah. You may recall in Isaiah 6, Uzziah was a very popular, conservative, pretty godly king of Judah. That when he died, all of Israel mourned. He was a conservative. He'd built up the walls around Jerusalem. They were very fortified. He even made some, some equipment that's described in 2 Chronicles that's pretty cool if you like that kind of thing, that he created and he helped see that it was invented and stationed along the walls and they were very secure and when Uzziah died remember how he died he died a very humiliating death because of his pride when he entered the temple and tried to do what only the priests are supposed to do but remember in Isaiah 6 Isaiah's mourning too he says on the year Uzziah died I saw the Lord high and lifted up it was a reminder that no earthly king should receive our loyalty Uzziah's son was Jotham. Jotham was also a good king. But Ahaz was a bad king. Say that with me. Ahaz was a bad king. You can say this with me. Ahaziah was the worst king. Ahaz was the worst king. He was the worst king that southern Israel or Judah ever had. He seemed to admire the northern kings and he tried to imitate them. He actually offered his children to Molech and to the pagan gods. He helped the northern tribes set up false worship in Mount Gerizim, in Samaria. So he was a wicked king, but from time to time, there would be alliances between Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Now, what we're told here is that 
Syria has a king. And you'll notice in chapter 7, it says that Syria's king was Rezin. Syria was a larger country. Israel was, was pretty significant too compared to Judah. They were, had a lot more clout than small Judah and Benjamin in the south. But their king was Pekah. Now all the kings in the north were what? Bad. All the kings in the north were what? Pekah was bad, okay? <laughs> right, because they were all bad. But Pekah and Rezin understood that Assyria, they were the big dog on the block. They were overtaking the world at the time, and they knew that their days were numbered. So they were trying to withstand Assyria from it coming and onslaughting both Syria and Israel. So they had an idea. Let's have a confederation with Judah and with Ahaz. When they tried, though, Ahaz said, I'm not interested. I've already got myself set. We're set. What he had done is he had made a secret agreement with Tiglath-Pileser III. Remember that? What's his name? <laughs> no, you don't have to remember that. The, the, the king of Assyria, he'd made this agreement with him, and the agreement was, I will give you gold and silver from the temple. This is how pagan Ahaz was. From the temple, so that you will not attack us, let's have a little confederation ourselves if you'll take care of Syria and of Israel. And he did. Now, do you think Pekah and Rezin were happy about that? Not at all. So after it took place, they were now set to make Ahaz pay. So Ahaz is in a crisis. Have I painted the historical setting for you enough? Some of you can come back now, okay? The history lesson's over, pretty much. So, this, so Ahaz is shaken because he hears that Pekah and Rezin, Syria and Israel are coming and they're going to try to take over and they're going to try to replace Ahaz with a puppet king. Now remember something. I tried to emphasize it in our Matthew 1 reading. Judah had been true to they were going to have a king who would ultimately sit in the seat of who? David's throne. What Pekah from Israel and Rezin from Syria want to do is put in a puppet king. We don't even know his name. He's the son of someone. But they want to put him there because they have no regard for the line of David and for this promise that a Messiah would come or someone would come, a greater son of David, who would sit on the throne of Israel. They had no regard for it. So here Ahaz is concerned, but Ahaz remembers that the last time I made a deal with Tiglath-Pileser III, it worked. So here's what happens. The word comes to him, and we're told in verse number two that once word came to him, he says, when the house of David was told Syria is in league or confederation with Ephraim, that's what Israel's often called, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people, what? Shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So he is in crisis mode. It's referring to his spirit like the trees blowing in the wind. Okay, do you ever have a situation where you are experiencing a crisis of any sort where inside and internally it would be accurate to describe it as a windstorm? Some of you are looking very spiritual right now, but you know what I'm talking about. So Ahaz is experiencing one of those moments, and what is his default going to be? Well, A, the crisis is, these crises often include one of these two or both. Terrifying people are terrifying times. The crises that we're looking at in Isaiah 7 is terrifying people and terrifying times. So what does Ahaz do? What is his default? Well, we're going to see how he responds. The Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shera Jashub. Now that's an interesting name for your son. It meant a remnant will remain. 
It was actually a prophetic. A lot of times the names in the Old Testament meant here's some communication or revelation from God. So he's saying, you're going to have a remnant that remains that are going to make it through this. So he take your son, share a Jashub, and as you take your son at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the, and if you've got a King James Version, I've got to say this, to the Fuller's Field. Now the ESV changes that to the Washer's Field, but I like it when my surname is there. It's only a couple times in the Bible. But what is Ahaz doing here? This is important. Ahaz has gone down to the place where the water comes in. They're very fortified, and this city was so fortified that they could withstand an attack for many months. You had to have good walls. Uzziah, his grandfather, built good walls. But there was a problem. They could store food, but they couldn't store water. And before Hezekiah, the water was always above ground. It wasn't underground. So he's down here trying to figure out, how can I keep my water supply when resin and Pekah come and try to attack? Have you got it in your mind now? This is what's happening. So he's trying to figure out a way to save water and fortify so that they can resist. What is your default when you have a crisis? We see Ahaz's default, and it is contrary to Proverbs 3, 5 through 7. Many of you have taken that as a life verse, but what does it say? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own what? Understanding. How many of us, when we hit a crisis, rather than trusting in the Lord, we go on to our own devices to try to provide security for ourselves? Guilty. I've shared this story probably with you before, but years ago I had the opportunity to go to Australia for the summer on a missions team. At the end of the summer, I had 10 days that I was going to go to Papua New Guinea and go to the bush and be able to preach the gospel with some missionary friends there. I was very excited about the opportunity. Towards the end of my time in Australia, though, I had some blokes from Australia that began to warn me about malaria and the possibilities of me getting malaria and that this could be deadly and that I needed to be careful. I probably shouldn't go in the bush and I haven't had the shots and I haven't had the proper medication. I was getting very nervous. I wasn't engaged to my wife at the time, but I knew who I wanted to marry. <laughs> and all these thoughts about, you know, if I get malaria, I may not be able to be married, I may die, you know, all these things, all the anxiety. As the trip got closer and closer, I heard about Bushman. Bushman is this insect repellent or mosquito repellent that has like 10 times the amount of DEET that you're allowed to have in the United States. I mean, it's powerful stuff. Basically, the mosquitoes start coming and they just start falling like bzz, bzz, bzz. It's powerful stuff. So I got a tube of it. Spent a lot of money, got a whole tube of it. And before I got on the airplane from Sydney, Australia to Port Moresby, Papua New Guinea, I took that tube of of mosquito repellent, and I, I, I basically went in the bathroom and covered myself from head to toe. I mean, just the whole tube. I know I smelt something awful, but I, I was like, you know what? I cannot get malaria. You know, I'll just not take a bath for 10 days. I don't know what I was thinking when I used the whole tube, but I remember getting on the airplane. I sat in the front, towards the front. There wasn't a first class on this plane, but I was sitting on the front, sitting by a guy who was an expatriate from, from um, Papua New Guinea. He was, he was kind of a gold miner in Papua New Guinea, interesting conversation, but I was so anxious about getting bit by a mosquito and having malaria that I never shared Christ with him the whole way over. I'm going to preach in the bush the gospel of the good news of Christ, and I'm so afraid that I'm gonna get malaria, I was totally mute. And I remember getting off of the plane, going into this little place that's supposed to be where you get your luggage. It was just really, really broken down. And I'm waiting for my one or two pieces of luggage, and I feel an itch on my finger. 
I look down and there's a mosquito just bit me. I'm like, what am I going to do now? <laughs> you know what I had to do? I had to trust the Lord. It may seem like a small thing to you, but that was my default. My default was use the Bushman. Use the insect repellent. Don't trust the Lord. What is your default? Ahaz is, is very clear. He is going to try to do what he's always done. I can fix this. But I want you to see the word of the Lord, if received by faith, actually brings security. So God sends Isaiah to Ahaz. Does Ahaz deserve to hear a word from God? Come on, you can give me a better no than that. No, he doesn't deserve to hear the word of God, but he sends it. The Lord said to Isaiah, go to meet Ahaz, you and Sheershabub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Now, Sheershashab was the name that meant a remnant remains. He had another son, as you may recall, called Mihar Shala Hashbaz. I don't know what it was like when mom called him for dinner. I mean, it was probably interesting. But long names, but they were, they were filled with meaning. He says to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Now, you're going to notice the rest of the text, he never refers to Pekka again. Commentators that are much smarter and brighter and understand the Hebrew language much more than I say that this is a, 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 a grammatical insult. He won't refer to his name as Pekka throughout the rest of this passage. He just calls him the son of Ramalia. I just think that's kind of interesting. But he says these two firebrands, or he noticed that the smoldering stumps of firebrands, those of you that enjoy camping, I'm not amongst you. Uh, my idea of a vacation is having a mint on my pillow when I, you know, before I go to bed. But some of you enjoy camping, and if you do enjoy camping, you probably made these, these fires outside your tent so that you're nice and warm and then throughout the night, what happens to them? It's supposed to burn out, hopefully. And when you wake up in the morning, you may have a few embers. The point here is they're all burned out. You don't have anything to fear, Ahaz. You don't have to be afraid. And he says, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabal as king in the midst of it, thus says the Lord God. So what he's saying is, Pekah and Rezin, they have a theological motive. What does he call Judah in this passage? Look at verse 2. He calls them the house of who? Some of you lost me, or I lost you. He calls them the house of who? David. So what Rezin and Pekka think they can do is they think they can beat the system. They can overcome God's promise that there was going to be one greater, a greater son of David to sit on the kingdom forever, sit on the throne forever. And he says, it's not going to work. What does Ahaz do? He doesn't believe God. He doesn't believe God because he's, he's then given a sign. And he says, you know, basically, I don't need to listen to this. I'm all set. I'm not going to ask for a sign. I don't want to tempt the Lord. We'll look at that in just a second. But I want you to notice his response compared to his son's response, Hezekiah. But let's look at his response real quickly. He's given this opportunity to ask any sign he wants. Look at verse number 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord, your God, and it, if it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to test. Now, what was the word of the Lord that came to Ahaz? Look at verse number seven. It shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. So how would you like to get this word from the Lord? Your greatest fear and God says to you, it's not gonna happen. Would that help? 
<laughs> I think it would help. If God says, your greatest fear right now, it's not going to happen. Well, that's what's told to Ahaz. For the head of Syria is Damascus, that's his capital. And the head of Damascus is Rezin, that's their king. Within 65 years, Ephraim, that's Israel, will be shattered from being a people. That's what's going to happen. In 65 years, Assyria will take them over. And the head of Ephraim, that's Israel, is Samaria. That's their capital. And the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. He doesn't even say Pekka again. But here's the principle. Look at the principle. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at what? Do you see it in your text? Come on, eyeball it, folks. Don't take my word for it. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm what? In other words, Ahaz, if you don't mix the word of God with faith, you're not gonna stand. You're gonna continue to shake and shiver and be paralyzed with fear. I like the NIV's translation of this verse a little better here. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. The word for faith and stand here is the same Hebrew source, which we get our English word amen from. Can I get up? Okay, there we go, yeah. Pastor Joe, I heard, worked with you yeah, last week. You did a little better, at least in the second service, from what I could hear. Amen, it means to be true, or so let it be. This is what I believe. And, and he's saying here, if you don't believe it, you will not stand. But Ahaz doesn't believe it. He says, I'm not gonna ask for a sign. Question for you. If you were given the opportunity by God for any sign to confirm that his word is true, what would you ask for? I thought about that a lot this week. I mean, not to be irreverent, this would be the ultimate genie in the bottle moment, right? I mean, this is the moment where anything you ask, he says, in heavens above or Sheol, the depths below, this is the same words that we get from Psalm 139, and God's knowledge is exhaustive. He says, ask anything, and I'll do it for you. What does Ahaz say? I'm all set. I've learned how to deal with this. I know how to work a deal with Tiglath-Pileser III. I know how to preserve the water. I'm all set. So his default setting is to not believe God. What's your default setting in a crisis, in crises? We have dealt with one as a culture and as a nation and as a world. We've dealt with a variety of ones this past year, the past two years. But there are those of you in this room right now, you are in the midst of one. Recently, my, my wife's phone just would not turn on. And so I, those of you that know me well know that I know very little about technology and I should stay away from it. But I, I did watch a YouTube about how I could try to restore her phone. So I went through the, the steps and then all of a sudden it was this moment where it says it's gonna restore it to its factory you know, settings. And I was like, oh no, that doesn't sound good. You know, the factory settings, you know what they are? Thankfully, she had stuff in the cloud, wherever that is, and, and she was able to get it all back later. But, but the factory settings are just your basic, you want English, you want to have face ID, all that stuff. And you, the way to get yourself in trouble with your wife when you say it's back to its factory settings, at least it's on, um, right? You know what your factory settings are, though? We should not view ourselves from Genesis 1 and 2. We should view ourselves from Genesis 3. We are born with a sin nature and our factory settings are not to believe God. So if you think your tendency is always to run and believe God when he reveals his word, that is not your tendency. That's not my tendency. Faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of God, regular exposure to the word of God. I want you to see the contrast though. Ahaz says, I'm not gonna tempt God, I'm not gonna believe, I'm all set. I've learned how to fix things. 
For those of us like myself who are fixers, we have the most difficulty in trusting God in these moments, don't we? We've learned, okay, I'll just, I'll just be a little more diligent. I've lost the job or I don't get as many hours or I've, I've lost a certain amount of pay, I'll just work more. I've got this event that's happened and I'll, I'll just, I'll put in more effort. Or I'll talk to somebody. I've got some friends and locations that can help me through this crisis. Ahaz is committing that great sin, that horrible sin, that damning sin of unbelief. It's a heart of unbelief. But I want you to see his son, Hezekiah. Turn over to Isaiah 36. We're going to look at 37, but I want you to see what happens in 36. It's just 33 years later. His son, Hezekiah, probably, arguably, the best king of Judah, godly man, son of the bad king, Ahaz. But he has a similar situ situation. The crisis could be arguably worse. Assyria now is threatening under Sennacherib. And what we're told in chapter 36 is they're threatening. But here's how he responds. Look at chapter 37, verse 1. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, what did he do? He went down to see if he could get his water source and make a deal with Tiglath or Sennacherib at this point. No. He tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the what? house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priest, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet who? Do you guys see the contrast here? I'm spoon-feeding you a little bit. Isaiah was sent by God to Ahaz. Ahaz wouldn't listen. Hezekiah, when he goes through a crisis, when he goes through a crisis, where does he go? Immediately to the house of the Lord. He sins for Isaiah. Later on, we find out that he begins to pray and beg God for deliverance. You see, Hezekiah demonstrates for us that if you're going to live by faith, you will stand if you will trust in God's word. Finally, I want you to see the sign, and that's the heart of this passage. Turn back to Isaiah 7, please. The sign of Emmanuel confirms the word of God. So we ask him, any sign you want, you can ask. And Ahaz says, I don't want to ask for a sign. Again, I, I think it's probably a, a neat moment for you just to imagine what you would have asked. Like I said, I, I thought about that this week. Some of you, it would be, I would like the, the strength and vigor that I had when I was 18 to 20, right? Maybe it's a lot of money. Maybe it's wisdom. Maybe you'd be like Solomon. Maybe it's deliverance. But he was asked for any sign to confirm his word, and he said nothing. But then the Lord says, I'm actually going to give you a sign anyway. Here's what the Lord says. He says, and here then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Isaiah saying, listen, it's one thing for you to weary the prophet. But God in his grace and kindness communicates to Ahaz because he's in the line of King David. It has nothing to do with Ahaz because Ahaz is a pagan. He doesn't believe in the Lord. But he's even included in the genealogy of Matthew 1. But here he says, you're wearying God. Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. What will the sign be? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she'll call his name Emmanuel. I want you to see a few things here. First of all, the double-mindedness on display of Ahaz. Ahaz is given this grand opportunity, and he says, I'm all set. James puts it this way, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Now, I do agree that it's difficult for us sometimes to take a pagan and compare it to our own experience and our own Christian walk. But listen, folks, 
this principle is always true. When we have one foot in belief and one foot in doubt, we are unstable in all of our ways. And Ahaz is being challenged here to believe in God and he will not. Secondly, I want you to see this as a double fulfillment of prophecy. This often happens in the scriptures. I believe that this was fulfilled in Ahaz's hearing, not in the exact same way. He's looking forward. What he's basically saying here is there is going to be a sign, and this sign is going to be unmistakable that anyone who tries to defeat the promise that the line, the Messiah, that there will be a greater son of David, King Jesus, anyone who tries to break that or destroy that, it will not happen. There's going to be this unmistakable sign. Now, I would like for you to put a question mark on this double fulfillment of prophecy. I've heard many people say that this was fulfilled in one way. Maybe it was Hezekiah, his birth to Ahaz or one of Isaiah's sons. The challenge is none of those women were virgins. And the challenge, too, is they happened at different times, and it wasn't before the crushing of both Syria and Israel. So I believe he's actually saying there's going to be this great sign, and the great sign is going to happen 700 years from now. And what does happen? It happens that there is a virgin conception, a virgin birth. And he uses the word here, Alma, which is not technically the word for virgin. It's for young woman who's of a marriageable age. But in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, he uses the Greek, the, the Jews use the Greek word parthanos, parthanos, which means a virgin. And every time alma is used in the Old Testament, it refers to a virgin. In fact, the most notable is found in Genesis 24, where Rebekah is found as a bride for Isaac, and she is a Alma. She is a woman who has not known a man, we're told in that passage. Now, just as a side point, is it important, is it vital for us, is it essential for us to believe in the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, it is. Could someone be saved without understanding it all? Absolutely. The reasons are, is first of all, it's because of biblical authority. Isaiah 7.14 predicts it, but don't forget, Genesis 3.15, the first gospel says something amazing is going to happen. What is the first gospel? The seed of the who? The woman is going to crush the head of Satan. Sinlessness of our Savior, Romans 5.12, describes how that the sin nature is passed from the man. By sin entered the world by one man, and sin and death passed upon all men, for all have sinned, and his divine nature. Simple procreation, the conjugation between a man and woman would produce simply a human. But the Holy Spirit impregnating or placing the, the Son of God in the womb of Mary, the supernatural God-man, what we refer to as the hypostatic union takes place. But what is the application here? Finish with me by turning to our text that we read in the opening. Turn to Matthew 1 once more. Matthew 1, and giving us the application of this passage. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ is the unmistakable proof that God will deliver those who trust him, but he will deliver them specifically from something. You know what he will deliver them from? Their sins. I want you to notice this in the text before us. In Matthew chapter 1, look at verse number 20. I'm sorry, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name what? Jesus, for he will save his people from their what? Sins. Generally speaking, you'll see the word sin in singular in our New Testament. 
But here it's sins, plural. He's saying that the very acts of sins Jesus is going to rescue his people from. So that means he's going to do more than just rescue them from the penalty of sin. He's actually going to rescue them from the power of sin. He uses this text. He says, this text proves it. To fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Here's the question for us this morning. Is God rescuing you from the power of sin in your life? Are you experiencing that? We, we talk a lot, we think a lot about being rescued from the penalty of sin, the ultimate penalty of sin, which is hell, lake of fire, eternal perdition. Praise God for that, amen? We've been rescued from that. But the scriptures teach us that he also rescues us from the very acts of sin. The virgin birth of Christ is the ultimate proof that God has the power to deliver us from a greater enemy than Pekka and Rezin. It's our sin. If we die in our sins, we will be forever lost. But dear folks, we should also be experiencing the rescue from the power, the enslavement of sin. Is that happening in your life? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. There's a list of vices there. There's a list of sins there's some of us here today that you regularly drink and it leads you to intoxication. It leads you to drunkenness. The Bible calls that a sin. Are you being rescued from drunkenness? Some of us use our tongues to hatefully talk about others or to others. We are destructive. We communicate death with our tongues. Are you being rescued from a poisonous tongue. Some of us are stingy. Some of us squeeze and swindle money out of people that are our patrons. Some of us steal answers to tests. Some of us practice homosexuality. Some of us view pornography. Some of us are flirting with an affair. Jesus came to save you from your sins. So just do a little bit of evaluation. This time last year, 2020, have you seen rescue? Have you seen that sin that so easily besets you? And it's probably different from the person who's beside you or in front of you or behind you. The sins that beset me, Brian Fuller, today that I'm seeing God progressively change. I wish it was swifter. My family certainly wishes it was swifter. Maybe different than the sin he's rescuing you from, but this is the, the collective experience we ought to be having as the people of God. How do you know you're the people of God? He's saving me from my sins. I'm not what I should be. I'm not what I want to be, but praise God, I'm not what I used to be. Is that your story? The virgin birth of Jesus Christ is not just this doctrine we ought to protect. We should do that. But it ought to have great application to your life. Is he rescuing you from your sins? This is the great sign. You're not going to be able to prevent the Messiah from forever reigning on the throne of David. Who do you think you are, Pekka and Rezin? You son of Raphalia? I don't even know your name. Can we as believers, actually thwart 
this wonderful progressive sanctification that he has for us now that the spirit of God is in your heart believer I want to encourage you to experience the advent experience the longing and the purpose of his coming let the spirit of God take the word of God to make you like the son of God experience the purpose for his coming to seek and to save that which is lost let's pray Father, we praise you for your son, for the sign, for the security, for your word, for the scriptures. We confess to you that there are seasons in our life where we're much more like Ahaz than we are Hezekiah. We lean on our own understanding. We try to rescue ourselves, secure ourselves, rather than trusting fully in your word and fully in you. And we confess, Lord, that there have been moments where we have allowed sin to just continue to have its sway. Lord, we pray that this year, this new year that's dawning, that we would enjoy the saving grace of our Lord Jesus, the saving power from sins, from behavior, from acts of sins, from harsh words to our spouse and children, to coveting and anger and bitterness and lust and pride Lord so many sins that entangle us we praise you that your son came to save us from those we pray that we would enjoy the rescue from them this year and we pray these things in Jesus name amen let's stand and sing together in